Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. You can't see me, but the smile on my face tells you how excited I am to have my friend of 25 years, more than 25 years, back from our days at Wellesley College, Dr. Molly Colvin, she wasn't a doctor then, who is the Steve Martin of the Puberty Podcast. She's like the SNL Steve Martin guest coming back to the Puberty Podcast for a second time because everyone loved her so much the first time. I'm going to give some of Molly's accolades because the list is very long. She is the director of Mass General's Learning and Emotional Assessment Program, LEAP, as it's known. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. She's a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from Dartmouth. And she's board certified in clinical neuropsychology with a subspecialty certification in pediatric neuropsychology from the American Board of Professional Psychology. I am exhausted just reading it and I didn't have to go through all that schooling. (laughs) She also rivals Lisa Damore for the most calming and reassuring voice out there. So be prepared to feel wonderfully calm. And she is brilliant and the most accessible of ways. So it is our total pleasure to welcome back Dr. Molly Colvin. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. That was such a lovely introduction. I'm always happy to be here with both of you. Be oh my careful. gosh, I can feel your smiles, both of you. It's like, a, <laughs> you don't even have to see this Zoom screen to feel the, the love and happiness. Well, Cara, we are going to be back on Wellesley's campus in a week for our 25th reunion. And it hasn't been that long. I oh know. My gosh, you're such and a baby. How is that possible? Because we're both still 22. So I don't know how that's possible, but it's true. And we have a whole first episode with you, which is one of our most popular episodes ever. And it is entitled The Consistently Inconsistent Adolescent Brain. I think Kara's titling really helped. She's very good at titling. Yes. And in that episode, which people should go back and listen to, Car just gave herself a little pat on the back. Um, <laughs> in that episode, if you haven't listened, you must go and listen to it. Molly gives us incredible information and framework for how a developing adolescent brain 
works, where it's wonderful, where it's challenging. So we're not going to go deep on that now, but Molly, if you wouldn't mind giving people like a two sentence and we say two sentence, but we know nothing is ever. Boil this whole field down to two sentences, (laughs) Molly. Just a quickie reminder for people about like what is happening in an adolescent brain. And then we're going to go deep on some specific topics. I think the short answer is a lot is happening. (laughs) (laughs) That's the two sentence version. Um, No, but seriously, I think that what we know is going on in adolescence is a whole lot of what I think of as kind of push and pull phenomena where there's a lot of dynamic change in different systems and those systems are interacting with each other and then also taking a lot of input and feedback from the environment so that they get kind of molded and shaped over time. But what that means is that some of those systems are out ahead of other systems and because they're not all developing at the same time, they're flexible, meaning they can respond to what's happening in the environment, but they also get out of sync with each other. And then behavior doesn't always look the same from day to day because they're out of sync and what's happening one day is a little different than what's happening the next day. So that's where you get sort of the consistently inconsistent behavior that's sort of coming from. And we can take a deep dive into what some of those different systems are. So with that background, And it really is, I'm just going to double down and say, it's really not just helpful. It's really important to actually understand what we mean by developing brain, maturing brain, brain under construction, which Molly explains so beautifully in her episode. So do go listen after this episode. It will fill in any holes that you are left with here. But with that background, let's pivot to a feature of adolescence And, you know, we define adolescence as tween and teen at this point. It used to be really seen as teen, even older teen years. The world has shifted that definition quite a bit. So let's talk about adolescence, meaning tween and teen brains. And let's talk a little bit about what makes them feel good, for better or for worse, like a cringeworthy behavior or a fabulous behavior. Let's get into the nitty gritty about why kids make the decisions they do in the context of how their brain feels. Yeah. So do you want to start with maybe a little bit of a, an entry point into the world of dopamine? We hear about dopamine all the time. It's the most famous neurochemical probably. Tell us what is it and why does it seem to act differently in these tween and teen brains? Great question. And you're absolutely right that in order for us to be talking about what makes us feel good, that takes us automatically to dopamine. And what we know is that dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Um, it's kind of found throughout the brain, but it has a higher concentration of activity in some areas of the brain that are really important in reward processing and things that make us feel good and things that we go seeking out good experiences from them. So some of those brain areas are kind of in the middle of the brain. They're in a sort of a network of regions that is broadly called the limbic system. And a lot of people have sort of heard about the limbic system. Sometimes people call it the reptilian brain. I don't love that. It's sort of, I feel like it dumbs down a little bit what the limbic system does. I think it's way more sophisticated than that because it's a sort of a network of regions that are really important in processing emotions. And that includes not just positive emotions, but also negative emotions. It's really important in processing social input and kind of what we think other people may be showing us through their behavior. And those regions, those limbic regions are critically tied in with the prefrontal cortex, which is the other region that we think a lot about in terms of adolescence. And I like to say that one of the things that's happening in adolescence is like the highways between the limbic systems and the frontal lobes are being laid down and kind of tweaked and built and adjusted from the, as you put it, the tween years all the way now, actually probably into early adulthood. That's one of the major things that's going on in terms of brain development 
is the communication between those limbic areas and the frontal lobes. And dopamine is the major neurotransmitter that sort of drives that connectivity. So I'm going to ask you a question about dopamine, but before I do, I want to go to a side comment you just made about the reptilian brain. Will you just make a little editorial comment and tell us why do people use that phrase and why don't you like it? Is it editorial if you're requesting her to make an editorial comment? That's a fair question. It's like why you shouldn't say, I think, in an essay that's all about what you think. I know. Okay, fair enough. I had the same question because one of our friends, Aliza Pressman, uses the term the lizard brain and the wizard brain, Mm -hmm. um, which is nice. She didn't make that up, but she doesn't remember who did. But I like that you're pushing back on an emotional location not being seen as sort of like prehistoric or dumbed down. So yeah, I'd love for you, not as an editorial, but because we're asking. (laughs) Um, Give us the evidence-based answer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I started the editorial comments. Now I should finish it. Um, (laughs) So... No, I, you know, I think this idea of the limbic system being more primitive kind of came from both some anatomical features, but also from some developmental features. So, you know, from the anatomical side, you know, it has some structural differences from the rest of the cortex, the sort of the regions of the brain that sort of encapsulate it. So the regions of the brain that encapsulate it are the cortex and, and those areas tend to have like six layers and people sort of thought that that made it more complicated than some of the limbic areas, which have more like three layers. And it has more in common with some of the other regions that are sort of across species as well in terms of its development. And I think the prefrontal cortex is something that we think of as that sort of distinguishes humans, although maybe not as much as we think it does. But I think it comes out of this idea that, you know, cognitive control is sort of a good thing and is the thing that we value in terms of the people being able to manage goals and being able to navigate themselves independently. But you can't really do that well unless you have also really good emotional and social processing. I mean, I think we can all think of examples where not paying attention to the emotional and social piece and just doing the thinking piece actually leads to bad decisions. And so I really think of it as being those two skills in balance and those two skills acting in concert with each other that make for really good behavior and what we want in adulthood and what we want people to um, develop over the course of adolescence. What a fabulous framing. Like Mm -hmm. that's pretty much the best framing I've ever heard of that. I got to tell you. Should we just finish now? Should we just press stop? Thank you, Molly, (laughs) for coming on the podcast. We love you. Have a great day. (laughs) So that, I find that really helpful for two reasons. One, because I didn't know it before. So A, new information. Thank you, Molly. Mm -hmm. But two, it eliminates the kind of hierarchy that we have in our culture that kind of looks down on emotionality, that looks down on sort of more instinctive reactions and places, you know, that sort of higher thinking, which yes, is valuable above those things. And as someone who can be very emotional and very instinctive. I am appreciating your emphasizing and valuing those things. Given the difference, right? Given that they, I guess, keep each other in in check, right? There's kind of a checks and balances. And knowing that you talked about how the prefrontal cortex, its development is into early adulthood. We have kind of different ages, depending on the research, anywhere from 24, 25 to 30 and everywhere in between. And if you have a more solid number that we can land on, please (laughs) tell us because we're constantly hedging. I'm always upping it. I'm always like 30, 31, 32, 47. Vanessa's Vanessa's going literature 25, 26. No, 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 no. Lisa Damore the other night was like between 24 and 25. And all I could think about was like, what age do we put in our book? What age do we put in our book? (laughs) 
Well, you know, it gets a little complicated because it it sort of depends on what aspect of brain development you're talking about. We sort of think that the neurons, the kind of neuronal connections, they do sort of stabilize in the sort of mid-20s, but some of the newer research suggests that those highways, the white matter development that connects all of those regions, may not actually settle out till the early 30s. And some there's some individual variability, I think, in there too. Um, some people may settle out earlier than others too. And there may be some, and we'll talk about gender in a little bit, but there may be a gender component as well. We know from the world of pediatrics that from birth, right, there is a different pace of brain development depending upon your chromosomes, XX versus XY, Mm -hmm. and the hormonal, we call it milieu. It's our very French way of saying all the hormones that are bathing your brain. Such a good accent. (laughs) And, um, And so we know that, frankly, that even just after birth, the female brain, the XX brain, is a bit more mature in whatever way you want to measure that compared to the male brain. And the through the toddler years and the early school years, that separation between maturation based on gender can be quite remarkable. Each individual is going to be their own individual data point. So there are certainly XY individuals who have very mature brains, very young. And mature is not meant as a compliment here. This is not, there's no judgment. It just has to do with exactly what you've described, the paving of those roads and the myelination and the also pruning and cutting back neurons. So, you know, that's certainly a component as well. So let's focus on the population that we're dealing with, who are the ones where the highways are very much under construction and the limbic system is ruling the roost for the most part. And one of the distinctions we like to make, Molly, and I'd love for you to go deeper on the neuroscience with this, is the distinction between the physical development of a kid, right? If puberty is happening on average two years earlier, you have it for girls on average eight to nine years old, boys nine to 10 years old, and yet brain development is still on its own separate path. So the difference between how a kid appears versus what they're neurological development is, has gotten, that gulf is wider. Yes. What does that mean? We can talk about it as non-neuroscientists, but I'd love for you to talk about it as an expert. What does that mean, that that gulf, that distinction between physical appearance and neurological development? It's a really great question. And, you know, I think even if you back it up even further than that, like the brain size kind of hits its adult size pretty early, kind of hits it in sort of early elementary years. So you're like looking at, in many cases, kids who are getting a lot taller, their heads are the size of yours, and yet their behavior is not anything close to what you would expect of an adult. And it's really, you can't actually get up under the hood and sort of see what's going on unless you're doing neuroscience research with imaging and things like that. So I think what happens most is, and then coming back to what we're talking about with the dopamine, is that within that sort of system, the connections between the limbic system and the the prefrontal cortex, when kids start to hit into adolescence, it's almost like the sensitivity to dopamine goes way up. And we know that this has to do partly with the hormonal influences that start to get unleashed around the time of puberty. So the neuroscientist B.J. Casey actually, I think, explains this beautifully in saying that, you know, I think our temptation is to kind of think that the reason kids behave consistently and consistently is because their frontal lobes are undeveloped. Well, if that were true, then we would see the same kind of behavior in Mm -hmm. adolescents, in children that we see in adolescents, Uh and that happens, right? What we see in adolescents is unique, and it's not just the story isn't complete if you just say it's not because the frontal lobes haven't kind of come online. It really is actually about that interplay between the limbic system and the frontal lobes, which is mediated by dopamine. Hmm. And that the sensitivity to dopamine goes way up in the limbic system when puberty begins. And that is probably mediated by sex hormone release. So it's not that you have more dopamine floating around the tween and teen brain. It's that The dopamine that exists either goes into the dopamine receptors or stays in the dopamine receptors longer, so it's more potent during those tween and teen years, probably mediated by sex hormones. Is there a difference? 
between the way a hormone like estrogen impacts dopamine and dopamine receptors versus testosterone. I'm going to guess as the non-neuroscientist that maybe different regions of the limbic system are impacted differently, but you may say, no, that's completely wrong. So (laughs) teach us. It is true. And I think one of the places that's sort of interesting in terms of sex hormone and thinking about adolescent behavior and the influence of sex hormones is the region called the amygdala, um, which we think of as being really amygdala. Actually, I think it kind of comes from almond shaped um, because it's sort of and that's how you can kind of identify it on an image. So the amygdala is really important in terms of we think of it mostly around fear processing, but it's actually broader than that. It's really about kind of emotion regulation and it has some sensitivity, um, especially to sort of social emotion. And estrogen and testosterone sort of interplay differently around the sensitivity of that region and the growth and the development of that region, which happens a lot during sort of adolescence years. And so one of the things that is particularly interesting is that, you know, dopamine that we were talking about makes us feel good, right? So it makes us go sort of looking for the things that are going to give a positive reward. And it actually also sort of makes us downplay sometimes the risks that may come with that reward, right? So this is one of the reasons why with teenagers, they're willing to take risks and you're like, well, didn't you think about kind of the what potentially could happen? And the answer is, well, no. And that is dopamine. That's sort of dopamine saying, this is all good. Don't mind the bad stuff over here. And it's not until those frontal lobes start to kick in and get in concert where you can actually weigh evenly and accurately the risks versus the rewards. And that is all dopamine. Do you or someone you love have smelly feet? Well, this is for you. We made magical socks. We did. The magic is zinc. With zinc around, bacteria cannot grow. And if bacteria cannot grow, well, then there are no bacteria to eat the sweat. And if there's no bacteria to eat the sweat, then there's no off-gassing. And if there's no off-gassing, then there's no smell. That's how um socks work. Check out the link in our show notes or go to myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and Out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box, And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, 
magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Molly, where in the brain is dopamine produced? Good question. So it's produced um, sort of down in the lower parts of the brain, and it kind of comes up through the basal ganglia and the striatum and then goes up into sort of the frontal lobes from, from there. So it travels the same way brains develop, right? It goes from exactly. the back to the front from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Okay. The receptor sensitivity shifts over time, That's the and that's the part that is mediated around the adolescence. Right. And just to put a finer point on that, so that listeners who don't know much about biology, neuroreceptor biology, will you explain sort of just conceptually when there's a smaller number versus a larger number of receptors or when receptors hold on to a neurotransmitter for longer, what that actually means functionally? Really good question. So um, one way of thinking about this is that the neurotransmitter acts like a key and the receptor is the lock. And so you want to have kind of a the right number of locks and keys, right? You can have a lot of dopamine, so you have a lot of keys, but if you don't have enough receptors, then you actually are not going to be able to unlock or make the brain sort of go as well as you would if you had the right number of receptors. In fact, some of the drugs that we use to sort of help regulate dopamine are actually not necessarily adding receptors as much as they might be sort of leaving the keys in the system longer so that they can operate more effectively on all of the available locks. So the drug mechanisms that we sometimes use around this, especially for drugs like ADHD, are actually impacting sort of the available keys and and locks um, in the system. And we think about dopamine in a variety of contexts, right? As Cara said earlier, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. One of the areas we think about it a lot is around the use of technology, gaming, social media, even just texting. Can you talk about what happens in the brain? Like what is the relationship between dopamine and the use of technology? When is it good and helpful and when is it worrisome? Yeah, really good question. So when we think about dopamine and how it works, I think it's easy to sort of say, you know, it's it's bad, right? People talk about kind of getting a dopamine hit and we often hear around dopamine, around addiction, and it certainly plays a role in all of that. But it serves a purpose too about helping us to seek out kind of goal-directed behavior and, and rewarding behavior and doing things that are actually beneficial to us. So 
you don't want to have no dopamine either. So that we often sort of talk about there's an optimal window of sort of having enough dopamine. And in, if you get too little or too much, then the system doesn't operate as well. When we start to talk about things like technology and social media and those kinds of things, I think what we are appreciating is that adolescence may be a particularly sensitive developmental window for social and emotional input. And so those limbic systems are super sensitive to sort of social and emotional cues and dopamine-based rewards that come with it. And so when we think about, you know, why our kids get so glued to TikTok or to social media or to sort of, you know, the gaming, it's because it's tied in for them with this sort of social and emotional system. It's huge reward for them. You know, for many kids who game, that is a primary social outlet. So they're like talking to their friends and they're gaming at the same time. So they're getting the rewards while they're talking to their friends. And that is like just a dopamine happy space for them that's hugely rewarding. But it can mean that if they're getting too much of that, right, if they're getting too much of a flood of or a release of dopamine from that, that things that are not that mm-hmm. sort of dull or kind of boring or not so exciting in comparison. And so I think as we are learning about kind of the impact of some of these kind of really rewarding and stimulating behaviors to teenagers, we have to start to think a little bit about how we help them to regulate it because the system that would help them to regulate their frontal lobes isn't online or in working in concert yet with that system. I would imagine then that a very similar argument exists with porn. Yeah. What you described the regular stuff, so to speak, feels boring, does not elicit the same mm. dopamine rush once you are stimulated with so much visual imagery and so much, you know, whatever, however you want to describe what you're seeing, whether it's violent or misogynistic or yada, yada, mm. yada. And that's the concern about porn addiction, right? And this is where the word mm. addiction comes in with dopamine. Mm. The idea of porn addiction being that without those images, you cannot have that flood of good feelings, I would imagine. Exactly. And I think that's also why we worry, you know, with any of the sort of sources of addiction with adolescents, because um, there is that sort of flood or rush of dopamine that can go unchecked because the systems that keep it in balance and regulated haven't sort of fully kicked in yet. And you want to feel good. I mean, it's human to want to feel good. Yeah. Right. right. So Molly, because I know you don't want to only scare the crap out of people and we don't <laughs> only want to scare the crap out of people. And because one of us may be locked in a major situation with their middle schooler all mm-hmm. around their relationship to technology and how do we balance. Actually, I, I have a funny story, which I'll tell you in a second, but I want to give people some constructive guidance about how to hold these two pieces of information, right? The right amount of dopamine is great. Social emotional input is important. It's valuable. And kids don't have some of the regulators in place. They do need help kind of creating some some friction, some parameters around their use because too much is not good. I was trying to, speaking of porn and technology, I was trying to set up the parental controls on my kids phone. And we were like on the adult website part of the iPhone parental controls. And we were like looking at each other. He's like, I mean, I don't watch porn, but like we have to put in a porn site. And I was like, okay, which one do we do? And and then we were like, okay, well, I, I guess it's just Pornhub. But then I accidentally typed in Pornhub to the line that says, always allow instead of the line that says never You're allow. not a Luddite. And then, I, and then we're looking at each other and we're like, wait, delete, delete, delete. But then we couldn't, for some reason, it wasn't letting me delete the always allow. So then we were like, if we put in always allow and never allow, which one is going to cancel which one out? Like which one is going to have privacy? So I say all of that for those of you who are listening and feeling completely overwhelmed and at sea by handling what you know is like too much of technology, gaming, social media, porn is a bad thing. And yet like you cannot watch your kid a hundred percent of the time. And there's some 
good things that come from them at interacting socially with people on technology. So like, what are the parameters? What do we do, Molly? How do we give people some guidance on this? That's a really good question. And I was also chuckling because I've watched my child in front of me get around the time limits on <laughs> just in front. I'm like, how did you do that? Well, I just did this. And I'm like, I it's have such no a flex. Just press this one button, mom. That's how I got it. <laughs> I, you know, I think that this is where we need to also elicit our balance in terms of our fear about bad things happening with our kids. And then also our knowledge about how we can kind of allow for some reward, risk, and exploration in a safe way. We know with adolescents, it does not work to say you can't have access to this. Like that just makes it more attractive and more rewarding to them when they finally do get access to it. And then it also means that it shuts the conversation down where they're not going to be telling you that they have access to it. And so it's really about kind of, I think, both modeling and also openly communicating around sort of risks and benefits. And so modeling can look a lot like, you know what, I have spent the day sort of watching this movie or reading a book or whatever it is. And now I'm actually going to get up and go to the grocery store and sort of saying, like, there's always this balance about the things that I want to do versus the things that I have to do. Mm. You do you, mom. And then making <laughs> making that clear. And then they're like, your life really yeah, exactly. they're so like, boring and lame. In grocery store, like, really? That's like, Why do I ever want to grow up? Yes. <laughs> that actually sounds like a really lovely day to me, I'm just saying. But yes. Things change when you get to middle age. But an acknowledgement, I think, in there that a lot of these phenomena we're talking about with dopamine and the addictiveness of especially screens... It's not a an adolescent phenomenon. We well, are all completely right. sucked in by our screens too. So I think maybe maybe in modeling, there's also sort of an implication. Hey, I love my phone as much as you love your phone, right? And so yeah. when they say, so you're like modeling, like, hey, there's stuff I got to do, and there's stuff I want to do, and I have to balance those things. And that's true of you too. When they say to you, and my children have said this to me. But like, it feels really good. Like, it's really nice to sit on the Xbox and be on FaceTime with my friends. And like, at the end of the week or on a, like on the Sunday, it's really nice. It's why, are, yeah. why are you taking this? Like, I am really busy. And why are you taking this away from me? How do we explain to them the concerns or the risks without using really big, scary words. I mean, every single day of the week, I'm holding myself back from saying like, you are addicted. This is what addiction looks like, right? Like I'm trying not to do that. Can I clarify your question though? Because it would be one thing if you have a kid who is really only going on screens on Sunday afternoon for an hour of decompression. Right. So, I'm not, I'm <laughs> right. Right. The context is this is a daily negotiation. This is, right? Well, this is a kid with a phone. This is a kid yep, with a phone. And so it's not just, you know, my eight-year-old who had an iPad on weekend afternoons. This is a kid with a phone. And it's like, they use it for fun. They use it to reach me. They use it to whatever, 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 million different ways. Molly, how do we explain balancing all those things with their health, with their, you know, brain health? I mean, I think there are a couple ways to think about this. One is a little bit like a balanced diet. I mean, it would be awesome to eat ice cream all the time, every day, all day. But eventually that's even the ice cream's not going to taste so good because your body actually needs other things. So that's one way you could use maybe for an elementary age child to sort of understand that there needs to be sort of a balanced diet of things that are pleasurable and engaging. And it's really hard for the swing set to compete with the video game. It's really hard. But that doesn't mean that once you turn the video game off and they go outside and they're on the swing set, that that actually will feel good. And that's sort of for a younger child. I think for a teenager, the conversation needs to kind of come up a level in sort of saying, I am kind of trusting you to start to use this device, which as you put it, has multiple purposes that are all really important, but it's a tool and you got to kind of how to learn how to use it in a way that's healthy for you. 
And that's really important because, I mean, in not too many more years, then you're going to give your middle schooler the keys to a car. That's also a really awesome jukebox. Some of them have really awesome computers in them now too, and they go real fast and they can be real fun, but they also come with bigger risks that are associated with those bigger rewards about independence and sort of being able to do those things. And so by having the conversations starting like all the difficult conversations, and I know both of you are on this page, you got to have all of them repeatedly in developmentally appropriate ways all the way across. And this Endlessly. is endlessly over and over and, and over. none of them are going to elicit a dopamine hit. Let me tell you. <laughs> none of them. And that's why you've got to go over and over and over again, because those learning systems are going to be primed for the things that are rewarding. And that's not one. You sort of having to teach them the breaks, the braking system, that frontal lobe system, is the one that's coming in sort of later and is outpaced during adolescence by the drive for reward and pleasure. And so to some extent, as a parent, you're sort of acting as the braking system, but you've got to learn not to just slam the brakes mm-hmm. because that will elicit conflict and shame and all of those other things, that which reduce your ability to communicate with your child about this. And what if they prove incapable of, like, you give them the responsibility, you have those conversations, and, like, they're still not capable of kind of managing what you need to do. How do we pull back? How do we take the do-over on that in a way that's not shaming, that doesn't make them feel like you're never going to be capable, I'm never going to trust you? Like, what sort of metaphors or, or framing do you like to use for that, Molly? Great question. And I love your term, the do-over, because I think sometimes we have to do those things too. I think that, you know, there it's important to be collaborative if you can, to sort of say, you know, this is going really well, but this didn't go so well. And I'm concerned about this. And so I'm going to pull back um, on this, or we're going to put some screen time limits in place. Um, but they're not permanent and we can sort of renegotiate or re have another discussion about this um, in a few weeks or months after I see X, Y, and Z. So you're also sort of telling them, I'm not doing this to punish or shame or even guilt. I'm doing this because I love you and I care about you. And I'm concerned about the impact that this is having on you. It, right. This it's, is not, it's not you, it's your brain. <laughs> it's your brain. <laughs> yes. And I say that to my own kids too. Like this this is like, you know, your brain, of course your brain wants to be watching YouTube 12 hours a day, but I need to sort of pay attention. I will say that when it comes to drugs and alcohol, what I have always said to my kids is it's not a never, it's a not now. And I explain it in terms of brain development. I don't know that it always resonates the way I want it to, but I do think that that framing for any of this is helpful in that you're not saying, No, you're saying, I I really am hoping your brain get there. I'd love to use an example for a minute of something that is not overtly dangerous, but has big consequences that can cause sort of this dopamine hit and poor decision-making. So I'm thinking things like shopping or gambling, where there's an excessive spend or risk with money. Gambling in particular, for those who have high school age kids, there is a real surge in gambling among teenagers as states have legalized online gambling, access to gambling, and sometimes it's their money. I put that in air quotes because it mean, that means lots of different, different things to lots of different people. Sometimes it's your money. Talk about the sort of when it's not a physically dangerous addiction, if you will, is the neuroscience the same? And are the steps to remediate the same? Great question. Really good question. And I think you're right that this is an area that sort of, you know, I think online shopping sometimes also gets out there, especially with like in-app purchases that sometimes kids can totally. sort of same kind of behavior. And broadly speaking, we're talking about the same system, same neurotransmitters, broadly speaking. I think in terms of how we deal with it um, and how we respond to it, I think broadly speaking, the messages can be similar. But I think when you start to get into issues that have more sort of significant consequences that can either be sort of legal, financial, risks to someone's physical or mental 
When we start to get into that territory, I think that's also a place where we need to have interventions that are perhaps more significant and, and more clinically oriented. And that would be a good time to sort of, at a minimum, have a conversation with a pediatrician, but potentially also sort of enlist um, mental health resources around that too. And I think similarly, we have to acknowledge that for some kids, this sort of system, for reasons that we probably don't always understand that it's sort of genetics or it's also situational environmental or a combination of all of those things, you know, these systems have a harder time kind of coming online than in other kids and sort of recognizing that, you know, if your child's really struggling with attention or limit setting or getting stuck and having a hard time sort of shifting without there being sort of chronic kind of disruption to sort of family systems, then that's also a time where it's worth sort of enlisting um, professionals to kind of help you navigate those things. And there's this sense that there is a genetic component. As you said, there's this sense that, you know, my grandfather was a gambler. Like he was a, an addict. He took my mom and my aunt and my grandmother to Vegas every weekend. He mm-hmm. lost the house. He, mm-hmm. you know, like he was a gambler. And there has mm-hmm. always been this thing in our family, you know, did you get it from your grandfather? So if there's a lottery jackpot, that's a zillion dollars. And I I will literally stand there and go, should I buy a lottery ticket? Or is this the gambling gene that's about to be unleashed? You know, there's this crazy, but there is a genetic component, right? To, again, to these systems being activated is really what it's about. Yes, exactly. And I think that's also part of the conversation that probably needs to happen within families too. Um, I think this comes up a lot around gambling is a good example, but also just addiction um, to drugs or alcohol. You know, I think in families where that is a, there's a strong family history, it's worth having a conversation with your kids about, you know, your, your ability to kind of navigate this may not be as strong as somebody else's. And that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or that you are an addict. It just may mean that you have to watch this a little more carefully than some of your peers. Molly, we've talked about stuff that feels good. Can we spend a minute talking about the stuff that doesn't feel so great for kids this age, which is one big one that people ask us about a lot is anger, sort of a rage that they feel like they can't control and that things just feel out of control and they don't even understand what's going on. And then, as we always say, that people ask us like, is my kid just like a total asshole? Like, is that what's happening? And we're like... We want to make sure they know it's actually kind of normal and this is part of the process. Can you explain what's going on neurologically and chemically for kids when we see that really frightening or out of control anger? Great question. So a little while ago, we were talking about the amygdala and I was saying how it's really important in sort of fear processing. It's also really important in kind of anger responses. So fear and anger are really closely linked biologically and it has really strong connections to the frontal lobes. But but again, those are under construction in adolescence. And so when we get into adulthood, you know, I often sort of say that the response of fear and anger are often super important um, in terms of giving you information about a situation. If you are feeling anxious or you're feeling scared or you're feeling angry, it's really important in those moments to kind of check in and figure out why. And that means pulling your frontal lobes in to sort of be like, what's going on in this situation? And sort of doing some real problem solving and pulling your attention into whatever that thing is, right? So it's biologically, that's a super important response and pathway between the amygdala and the frontal lobes. But under adolescence, it's under construction. So one of the things that may happen sometimes is that kids have that response But rather than it being harnessed or channeled by the frontal lobes into some really good problem solving and strategizing, it goes unchecked and just kind of comes out. Mm. (laughs) And I call those the kabooms um, for parents. Like (laughs) you're like going along. Medical term, kaboom. (laughs) Right, exactly. And then you have a kaboom episode where you're like, what just happened? You know, and it sort of feels, I think, for Everybody around a teenager can feel a little like walking on eggshells because you're just, things are going on okay, but then all of a sudden you have a kaboom and you're like, I didn't see that coming. 
the good news is they usually sort of resolve fairly quickly. They usually kind of calm back down and kind of come back to neutral, sometimes even faster than the rest of the family. But I think it's really important to kind of recognize that in that moment, the emotions themselves are valuable and need to be sort of recognized and not necessarily suppressed. But there can be a conversation about how if they aren't channeled appropriately, that what that impact is on everybody else. Does that make sense? It does. Is there an age at which self-awareness comes? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, isn't that a that's a, a big piece here? So is there is there a moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that ability to sort of look back on yourself is one that in typically developing kids, you know, you can see sort of the emergence of it in elementary years where they can sort of like reflect and kind of think back on it. But that sort of insight piece and really being fully developed is late. And I think part of it is that if you think about what goes into self-awareness, there's a lot of trial and error, right? I mean, like having the experience of life is where that, you know, one way of thinking about self-awareness is wisdom, right? It's sort of this idea that you've had enough experiences to see how you're going to respond and how other people respond to you to anticipate that maybe that's not the best way to do that. I'm going to try that differently next time. And when you're in adolescence, they just haven't had enough life experience to sort of really fine tune that system. But that's what's happening is that their brains are staying malleable so that they can continue to get input from the environment about what people's responses is going to be. And that's where your job as the parent or the loved one or the guardian is to sort of help them gain that insight in a way that isn't totally negative, but is it also realistic and sort of honest. Molly, as ever, you are a font of Amazing. knowledge, brilliant metaphors or similes. I'm not sure which ones. Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> and reassurance. I'm going to replay this episode over and over in my head as I now move around my house this weekend and figure out who I need to talk to about what issue. This is amazing. I hope that we will get to have you back many, many more times. Oh, I would love that. It's always a pleasure speaking with both of you. This is always fun. Thank you, Molly. Thank you both for the work you're doing. Thank you. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.